Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, good morning. I just want to orient everybody to kind of where we are today in our study of God's Word. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that we are in the midst of a series that we are drawing from the great truth of the book of Ephesians. Um, In this series, we have titled Pact. And the reason why we've titled this series Pact is because the, the letter to the Ephesians, which really was a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians who lived in the town of Ephesus. And as Paul wrote this letter, he included in it a number of ways in which God has blessed us. And really, the the visual that we're working off of in this series is that God has packed our bag for us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places as we journey in this life, uh, a journey that takes us far from our heavenly home. But God has packed within us the things that we need to live and to thrive and to follow Him. And so, we saw a couple of weeks ago that we have been blessed with every blessing in the spiritual in the heavenly places, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and we saw that. And then last week, Pastor Bruce helped us uh, see at the end parts of chapter 1 of Ephesians how we can pray that God would take this, these great blessings that God has extended to us and he might, we might open the eyes of our heart that we would really understand how deeply we've been blessed by God. Today, we're going to continue this series by looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, and some of the most foundational verses in the entire Bible. It's been said of Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, that it really is like the book of Romans chapter 1 to 8 in just 10 short verses. And so we uh, have a great section of God's Word to look at today. But before we we look at Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, uh, I want to just share with you a little bit of a story I want to share with you a little bit of, of, of my life, kind of be transparent with you in this way. Um, I, wa- I want you to know um, that, that we are very, very rich. Uh, my family is, is actually, not that we have the money now, but we have promise of just untold riches. I mean, like $20 million dollars. And I just want to let you know that. And, and you, know, you might be, be wondering, well, where, where does that come from as a pastor? Have I somehow skimmed off the top? I haven't done that. Um, you might be wondering, do I plan to win the lottery? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not that, that, that gullible to think that uh, I could win the lottery. Um, but, but in fact, uh, $20 million, pretty certain, is coming my way. And, and that really is because I heard from the deposed crown prince of Nigeria um, He'd fallen in kind of a hard time, really, uh, and, and he, he really needed to seek asylum in the United States, and he needed to move his money from, from there to here, and he just needed some help. And uh, so when he called, I thought, I, I, I got I to help. So I got this email from him um, letting me know that if I just will pay a few thousand dollars in wire transfer fees, that the manifold riches, $20 million, is coming to my bank account. And so, you know, I'll invite you over to my yacht. We'll have a great time after it comes. Um, Anyway, no, you, you guys are probably sitting there going, surely he's not that, that gullible, and you're right. Um, I, I do not think that somehow uh, my life caught the deposed crown prince of Nigeria's eye. 
I don't think that my blog or my dashing good looks somehow convinced this man that, that I was worth $20 million to, to move it to my, my bank account. I, I, I don't think that. You know, um, life has taught us that offers that sound too good to be true generally are, right? A life has taught us that. So when you get an email like that, I mean, just out of curiosity, how many of you have gotten an email like that? Maybe not the same one, but similar. Okay, I'm, I'm not unique. I really feel bad. I thought he wanted me. Uh, he wants all of us. He's got a lot of money. Um, but, but, you know, the, the, the idea uh, of this uh, is, is it's really just, it's a scam, right? It sounds too good to be true, and it is. It's all designed to take something from us, not give anything to us. Life has trained us to see such offers as scams or as hoaxes. And you know, believe it or not, there are some who would look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, the the story of our salvation, and they would describe it as some kind of a spiritual scam or hoax. I mean, they, they might say, surely, 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 you don't believe that your salvation is tied to the fact that God just wants to give you forgiveness. He wants to give you the the manifold blessings of God. He just wants to to give it to you. That it's not something we would earn by our good works. Some would look at the story of the gospel and say that it's a scam or that it's a hoax. Maybe uh, you've got a, a family member or a friend or a coworker who feels that way. Maybe you yourself are here today. You're like, yeah, you just summed it up. Why I'm not a Christian. This sounds like a big spiritual scam, a big spiritual hoax. But here's the thing. What if it's not? What if the, the offer that seems too good to be true is actually true? What if God desires to do for us what we cannot do on our own? What if the gospel message, though it sounds unbelievable, is actually the only way that you and I might have a relationship with the living God? We're going to dive into that today as we look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. These verses unpack for us the very essence of the gospel, and it describes it not as a scam, not as a hoax, but as a generous gift from our heavenly Father to you and me. We're going to look at it today. So if you've got a Bible, open to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. I, I, we're, going to, we're going to dive into this. We're going to see some things. But before we do, I, I want to just read it. And as we read it, I want to, us to stand as we read God's Word today. So would you stand as we look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10? Paul writes and says this. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You may be seated. This morning, we're going to see four things about the gospel, four things that might seem unbelievable at first glance, but are actually uh, the core of how we might be made right with God, the four things that we will see. First one we're going to see is this. We need to recognize our need. We need to recognize our need. We see this from Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. Paul writes, and he begins, and he says, and you. Well, who's the you? Who's he talking to? Who's Paul writing this letter to? Who's the you of Ephesians 2.1? We, we know uh, from context that the you of Ephesians 2.1 are the believers in Christ who lived in the city of Ephesus. That's how he began the letter. Paul began the letter saying that this letter was to the believers in Christ who lived in Ephesus. So when Paul says you in chapter 2 verse 1, he's talking about Ephesian Christians. But he says, and you were. So Paul is talking to the Ephesian Christians, but he's talking about something about their lives that relates to who they used to be. Not necessarily who they were now, but who they used to be. He's going to describe something from their past. By application, I think that as we read this, we can understand this to be a declaration of truth about any Christian before they came to know Christ. If you know Jesus as your Savior, then what he's getting ready to describe is he's going to describe your life before Christ. Furthermore, we might say that this is actually talking not just about believers before Christ, but it's talking about any person before they come into a relationship with Christ. So if you're here today and you've never placed your faith or trust in Christ, then the and you is talking about you today. It's talking about me today. He writes and he says, and you were the collection of people without Christ. He says this about them. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He says that they were dead. Now, he's not talking here about a physical death because they were physically alive. They were eating, they were drinking, they were taking in oxygen, they were giving off carbon dioxide. Uh, they weren't physically dead. But what he's saying is that they were spiritually dead. Uh, the idea of a spiritual death is a separation from spiritual life. It makes sense, but let me put it in this way. To say that somebody is spiritually dead is to say that they have no possibility of having relationship with a living God. A spiritually dead person cannot have a relationship with a living God. So when, when Paul says that they were spiritually dead, what he was saying was they were totally distant from God, totally absent from any kind of relationship with Him, apart from Christ. And that state of being spiritually dead was a product of their sin and their trespasses. In other words, because they had disobeyed God, because they had gone their own way, the resulting condition was no relationship with God and no prospect for a relationship with God. Apart from Christ, we're dead 
in our trespasses and in our sins. But he continues. He says, not only were we dead in our trespasses and our sins, but he also says that we were following the course of this world. The idea there is that this world in which we live um, has a path that wants to take us not towards God, but away from him. The course of this world will never lead us into a relationship with God. As a matter of fact, it's just the opposite. The course of this world, the, the world's ideas, the world's values, the world's agenda will never take us into a relationship with God. It will always take us away from a relationship with God. Just a, a picture or an idea. You know, this, this summer you might go on vacation of some kind. And as you go on vacation, you, you might have the opportunity to hop on a water slide. And when you think about what a, what a water slide looks like, I'm not talking about the little blue one in your backyard. I'm talking about a real deal big water slide, the kind you'd see at Whitewater, the kind you would see at Schlitterbahn, maybe you know, standing on the side of the road in Branson, USA. There is a water slide out there calling your name this summer. And when you think about what that water slide is, it's a, it's a concrete flume or a fiberglass flume that starts up here, and there's a current that flows down the middle of that flume, that if you get in that flume, it will take you from the top to the bottom to the water below. It will take you down a course. It will take you down a path. And the idea about the course of this world is that the world is, is like a flume that has a current that wants to take you away from God, and the pool below is not refreshing. It is destructive. The course of this world wants to take you away from God. And apart from Christ, we're on a course away from God. We are, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Third thing that it says, it says that we are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The prince of the power of the air is a reference here to Satan. The idea is that when we are apart from Christ, we have a leader in our life. This is not saying that we are all Satanists, but it is saying that Satan was the, the father of disobedience. He was the first to lead a rebellion against God. He was the first that said to God, your way is not good enough, I want to go my own way. And everybody who's made that decision from that point forward is following Satan as our leader. Certainly there is demonic influence in the world, but I think that the big idea here is that when we live a life apart from Christ. We are living a life of, of deadness. We are living a life following this course with a leader who is Satan himself. It says that we were dead. We're following the course of the world. We're following the prince of the power of the air. Verse 3, it says that, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. The idea here is that our flesh or this part of us which does not want to follow God, that wants to do our own thing, that wants to go our own way, that this flesh inside of us has so tainted our, our minds, so tainted our desires apart from Christ that we can't trust the inner voice inside of us. Now, it's very common in our world today for people to, to say things like, you just need to do what's true to you. You just need to follow that, that voice inside of you, and, and it'll always take you in the right way. But what happens if the voice inside of you is, is corrupt? What happens if the voice inside of you is wrong? Well, the possibility is that you could be following that voice inside of you, that, that flesh, that selfish part of you, away from God and not towards Him. And, and this is the description of us apart from Christ. 
dead, following a course to destruction, following Satan down that path, not even being able to trust the inner leanings of our desires. And the product of all of that, the pool at the end of that flume, it says, is that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is as dire a description of humanity as you could possibly have. But Paul feels it necessary to begin there because Paul knows that we would never embrace the reality, and God knows we would never embrace the reality of the greatness of what is offered us in Christ if we didn't first understand just how deep our need for Him is. Now, I want to give us an an example that maybe will help us to understand that just a little bit. Let's say that you go out to lunch today after church, and you go to your, your, one of your favorite eating establishments. Maybe you're going to go to Dickie's today. Dickie's, by the way, didn't compensate me at all for the use of their cup. This is just the one I had access to this morning. But let's say you go to, to Dickie's, and you, you, get, you get your meal, you get your ribs, your brisket, whatever. Uh, you sit down at your plate. You've got a big yellow cup full of sweet tea, and you are enjoying that. And let's say that after a while, uh, that cup is not full. And someone on the wait staff comes over to you, and they see that your cup is not, not full. Um, and we might want them to top it off. Might want them to take, you know, glasses half full, just top it off, fill it all the way up. You know, some of us view our opportunity at salvation like a glass that is half full. We just need Jesus to top it off. That's how some of us think about our, our chances of living in relationship with God. We think that, you know what, I'm, I'm not as bad as I might be. I'm, I might be a quarter full, might be a half full. I might have a few ice cubes left in the bottom. I don't need a whole new anything. What I need is I need Jesus just to top it off. His grace will just make up for the difference. I'm partially good. God can just fill in the rest. That's kind of how, how we feel. But, but here's the picture of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3 lets us know that our need is not to have our cup topped off, but our need is something far greater because our cup is absolutely broken. It's got a hole right there in the bottom. See, not only... Do we not have enough righteousness to make the cup full, but our our nature is broken so that we would never hold enough to be pleasing to God. The reality of Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 3 shows that our need is not partial, but it is total. That's the first thing we need to see from Ephesians chapter 2. Second thing we need to see is that we need to remember His provision. We need to recognize our need, but we also need to remember His provision. We see this in verses 4 to 7 that begin with two of the greatest words in the entire Bible, but God. What an amazing way to begin this thought. See, we were dead in our sins, but God. 
We were following the course of this world, but God. We were having Satan as our leader, but God. We were giving into the fleshly passions of our heart, but God. See, the, the reality is that if God doesn't act, then we don't have a chance because our need is so great. Our cup is broken, but God decides to act. And after declaring God as the actor, and what's, what's fascinating about Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, is it looks like various sentences in, in the English Bible, but in the original Greek where this was written, Chapter 2, verses 1 to 7 is one sentence. It is one sentence with one subject, and that is God. God, everything flows off of Him. We are the objects of His action, but God is the one who acts because salvation requires the initiation of God because our cup is broken. Our need is full. And why does God choose to act? Why is it that God chooses to, to reach out to us? It, it says to us very clearly why God chooses to act. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Why does God choose to act? God chooses to act because he loves us. A part of the very character of God is that God is, is loving and God's love is extended towards us. And when God, who is a loving God, wants to act towards us and relate towards us, that love becomes mercy because the mercy of God is his commitment to help us in our time of need. And so God, who is loving, is rich in mercy towards us. He decides to reach out and extend to us what we absolutely need in this, in this situation. Now, this is why it's not crazy for us to think that salvation could be a gift from God. The very nature and character of God changes the equation entirely. Why is it that it seems crazy for me to believe that the deposed crown prince of Nigeria wants to give me $20 million? Why is that crazy to think that? Well, he doesn't know me. I've never met him. Um, there's no relationship there. He's a human living on this planet. There, he's going to have an angle. There's something he's going to want in return. But the whole equation changes when we think of God. The reason why it's not crazy for us to think that our salvation could be a gift of God is because the very character and nature of God is loving and his attitude towards us is merciful. He desires to act and to give us what we need in our, in our hour of peril and spiritually speaking, he desires to do several things outlined for us in verses 5 and following. See, God, who is rich in mercy and great in love, does this for us. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. He made us alive. Now, what is, what is that idea? What's he talking about? Well, remember, what, what are we apart from him? Spiritually dead. 
we're turned off. There's no way for us who are spiritually dead to have a relationship with the living God on our own. But God reaches in and makes us spiritually alive in Christ. He turns us on to give us a capacity to relate to God again. This involves forgiveness, but it also involves a complete redo of our souls that allows us to be turned on and activated so that we might relate to God. That is nothing we could do on our own. It is something that God must do for us. But God made us alive in Christ. Verse 6, and he raised us up. Second thing he does, he raises us up with him. Now, if somebody dies, where do you put them? You put them in the grave. This picture of us being raised up with Christ is the picture that God doesn't just activate us, make us alive, but leave us in a graveyard someplace. What God does for us in Christ is not only does he activate us, turn us on, allow us to have a relationship with God, but then he elevates us with Christ. He makes our home heaven that makes us able to have a relationship with God that would go on for eternity, eternal life, because we've been raised with Christ. He frees us from the the bindings and the bondage of living life as merely an earthly citizen and puts our citizenship in heaven that we might be able to relate with God there forever. See, in Christ, we have been raised up. If Satan was our leader before and our course was destruction, our leader now is Christ, and we have been raised with him to the heavenly places. Where it says, continuing in verse 6, that he also has seated us with him in Christ. Where is Jesus seated right now? Well, he's, he's seated in a place of honor at the right hand of, of God the Father. It's a place of honor and of blessing. It is not a scam. It is not a hoax. It is not crazy to think that a God who loves you would seat you with his son that you might experience the manifold blessings of God that we've been talking about in this entire series. See, God has acted on our behalf. And he's done it because he loves us, but he's also done it, verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In other words, if people wanted to know, is this God kind? Is this God loving? Is this God merciful or gracious? The angels of heaven, the demons of earth, Satan himself would have to look no further than our lives to see how God loves us or the fact that God is a loving and a kind God. We have become a trophy, a display of God's greatness. It's not a hoax. It's not a scam. It's not crazy for us to think that God is blessing us in that way when we understand who he is and what he is doing for us in Christ. You know, going back to our example, if you had this broken cup, that's us without Christ. Our need is, is not to be topped off because this cup can never hold the water to begin with. What we need is a whole new cup. In case you're wondering, yes, this is an Oklahoma cup. Uh, Why is that? Because there's only one. We need a whole new cup. 
And what God has done for us in Christ is he's not come on and said, I want to top off your already marginally righteous life. But God has come to us and said, you need a whole new cup. And Ephesians 2 verses 4 to 7 lets us know that provision of God that he extends towards us. We need to remember his provision, recognize our need, remember his provision. The third thing we're going to see from this passage, we need to receive his gift. We need to receive his gift. Verses 8 and 9 unpack this for us. These are some of the greatest verses in the New Testament. If you've got a a son or a daughter that's in Awana, it's probably one of the first verses that they have memorized. Awana is a scripture memory club on Wednesday nights here during the school year. Um, It's probably one of the first verses that they memorized. If you have ever been a part of a scripture memory program, you probably memorized Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. If you've ever gone through any kind of evangelism training course, how to talk about your faith with other people, you would go at some point right to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, because these are such great verses that describe for us what God has done for us in Christ. And ultimately, they're inviting us to receive his gift. It says, for it is by grace that you have been saved. What does the word grace mean? Grace means gift. A gift that we did not deserve, a a gift that we did not earn. See, God has, has given us salvation because he is rich in love and mercy. He has given it to us. And when we fully understand verses 1 to 3, that is the only option for us. We fully understand how broken our cup is. Our only hope is to be given a new cup, and that's not something we can do on our own. That is something we need God to give to us. And so our salvation is a gift that God has given. It is not on the basis of our own works. We shouldn't boast about it. We shouldn't say, wow, I'm so smart that I figured it out or any of those things like that because it is a gift that we did not deserve but that God gave us. He gave us a new cup, a new capacity, a new life, the opportunity to relate to God forever. But this gift that he extends to us We need to receive. It says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is through faith that we receive the gift that God has given us. And if we do not exhibit faith in what God has done, if we we never trust that Jesus' death on the cross makes up for our deadness following the course of this world and our own sinful passions, and the wrath that that deserves. If we, if we do not come into a spot where we, where we are embracing that Jesus' death makes that possible by faith, then the gift that God has offered us will never become effective in our lives. I'll give you a, an example. Go back to our little cups here. Just imagine that you're back at Dickie's. Anybody hungry now, by the way? It's, you know, it's, it's getting late in the morning, talking about barbecue. Uh, you, you've got you got your cup, and you're sitting there. You're sitting there at Dickie's, and uh, your cup is empty. Why? Because it's holy. <laughs> and you're you're sitting there with your with your empty cup, and around comes the wait staff, and they want to put some sweet tea in your cup. Well, they come by, and and you the first time you might not realize it. It's poured in there, and it just spills out the bottom. But you know what? My guess is that there would be some people 
that would see this hole in the bottom as some kind of character flaw that they need to overcome in their own strength. And, you know, they just would not want to admit there's probably a guy, probably not a woman, a man would probably feel like this. I need to, to show you that I can solve the cup problem on my own. And so they're, they might put their, their hands as tight as they can, try to make a, a, a tight perimeter around there, you know, just a straw to maybe drink it up. But you know what? Every time it's poured in, it keeps leaking out the bottom. And, and the wait staff comes by and they see our problem. And the wait staff says, look, why don't you have this beautiful cup with no holes in it? And I will fill it and give it to you that you might have a drink. Now, you have an option. You can stay there stubborn saying, no, my cup is just fine and never have anything to drink. Or you could receive the gift of Oklahoma life and have what you need. And this is the picture of salvation. God comes to us and says there's a reality of a new cup that is offered to you. But in order for this to hold the blessing that I have for you, you must receive it in faith. And the question becomes for, for you and me is, what cup are you holding? Has there ever been a point in time in life when, when you, you realized that your cup was broken and you needed a new one? Was there ever a point in time in life where you realized that what you needed was the grace of God to offer to you what you could not earn on your own? Has there ever been a point in time where you have received in faith the gift of life in Christ? If, if there has been, then you have a cup of blessing in front of you. But if you are clinging to your own strength, there's an empty cup with no prospect apart from the one God is offering you today in Christ. We're going to come back to this in a moment. I want to give all of us a chance to reflect and respond to that truth. But the reality is, as we look at this passage, God is offering us the opportunity to receive the gift of life in Christ. Recognizing our need, remembering His provision, receiving His gift. Lastly, reorienting our lives, reorient our lives. We see this in chapter 2 and verse 10, uh, this beautiful verse uh, that talks about how once God has saved us, He wants to live with us and, and work with us and work through us in this life. It says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's the idea that God has, has come uh, to us, and in Christ, he, he recreates us. He makes us his workmanship. The, the, the Greek word that lies behind that word translated there, workmanship, is the word poema. Uh, we get our word poem from it. It's a, it's a beautiful creation, something that God has, has manufactured, He's put together, he's, he's, he's redone us as He activated us and made us alive. He has redone us and raised us to the heavenly places. And, and the hope and the desire that He has for our lives is that they would be reoriented around His truth. He has recreated us so that we might live a life of good works. And it says of these good works that God has prepared them beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I have frequently read these verses in my life um, and understood them to mean that, that God had 
gone before me and set up a bunch of situations for me to live into. Uh, That God had set up this work arrangement, that God had set up this family arrangement, that he had set up this, this situation um, and, and he had set them up so that I would walk in them and, and, and something would happen. Um, it's kind of a mystical understanding of this, that God is, is at work, you know, guiding our path and our steps. And, and I certainly think that that idea uh, could be at play in Ephesians 2.10. And, and if that is your understanding of it as well, I don't want to um, discourage that thought from you. I do think that God is sovereign. I do think that God is going before us and, and leading and guiding us in life. But I think that Ephesians 2.10 is certainly saying, at least it's saying more than that. See, Ephesians 2.10, when we see it in context of this whole section, is talking about how God has set up a different flume for us. He set up a different water slide, a different course for our lives. If the world has set up a course that is leading to destruction, God has set up a course that is leading to a life that is glorifying and honoring to him. In Ephesians chapter 4 through chapter 6, he's going to go through a number of commands and challenges, a number of descriptions and pictures of what it looks like when somebody is following God and exhibiting faith in all aspects of their life. Um, And I think that what Paul is doing in chapter 2 verses 10 is he's setting that up. He's saying that God has set up a different course for our lives. It's not magical or mystical for me to understand that God wants me to love my wife. He came right out and said it in his word for me to understand. It's, it's not a mystery for me to understand that, that I'm, I'm to, to deal kindly with others and to be, to be loving towards them and to love my neighbors myself. It's, it's not a mystery. I don't have to wake up today and wonder if God has that for me today. I know that he does because he set up a course for this life. He has pre- prepared it for me. And when I trust God and I get on that flume, it will lead me down a life of honoring him when we lean into the course that he has laid out for us in Scripture. But the question you might have is, is, is a good one, and that is, well, okay, but isn't it possible for us who are living in relationship with Christ to, to sin? Isn't it possible for us to get off of that course and to live a life that is not pleasing to God for seasons or sections or, or whatever of our life? And the answer to that, is, of course it's Yes. The New Testament gives countless examples to that. Our lives provide lots of testimony to that. But this is what that, that really is saying. It's saying that we weren't created for that. I'll use uh, my laptop here to maybe help illustrate this point a little bit. Uh, my, my trusty MacBook here was created um, for a purpose. It was created to be able to connect me to the internet. It was created for me to be able to communicate via email. It was created for me to be able to, to type up sermon notes and, and for me to be able to, to build slides that we are part of our service. It was created so that, that we could use it for all of the purposes that you use a computer for. That's what this was designed for. We were created for good works. This was created for those kinds of good works. But the question is, can I use this computer for something else? Yeah, of course I can. Can I use this computer as a hammer? Yeah. As a matter of fact, I noticed that there was actually kind of a loose stud right here, and I don't have a hammer, so I'm just going to use my laptop to, I wouldn't do that. Um, that you're thinking, how far would I go to make that point? Um, not that far. Um, why would I not do that? Because it would be such a waste. This makes a lousy hammer. 
all that will be left is a broken laptop if I did that, and a marginally driven in nail. You and I were not created to live a life following our sinful passions and lust. Sure, we can do that, but when, when we do that, we're using a laptop to nail in a stud. You know the feeling that you had whenever I pulled this back and, and was moving like that? If you had this feeling, you know, that, that feeling of, no, don't. That's what your friends think about you when they see you living a pattern of sinfulness. That's what you think of me when you see that in me. Think, oh, no, don't do that. You know, sometimes we get all worried about being judgmental or whatever, we see every response from a believer when we're living a life of sin as, as some, some kind of a terrible judgment on our lives. You know, sometimes it probably is. Sometimes there is some self-righteousness in there. I'm not going to deny that. But you know what it is sometimes? Sometimes we look at the life of a friend, a dear brother or sister in Christ, and we say, no, don't do that. You're using this life that God created for good works, and you're, you're using it to, 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 to nail in something that will just leave you broken. See, we were created for good works. God wants us to reorient our lives around that truth. Recognize our need. Remember His provision. Receive His gift and reorient our lives. The great truth of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. We're going to conclude our service uh, by singing a song and, and also having a, a chance to reflect. Um, but before we do that, I want us to pray. So would you bow with me? Father, we are, are so thankful today that as, as we gather, we gather before a God who is loving and a God who is rich in mercy towards us. Father, what a, what a blessing that is uh, to know about you and about your character. Uh, what, a, what a tremendous um, confidence that gives to us and in us um, to believe that the spiritual story of the gospel could actually be true. It's not a scam, it's not a hoax, but it's the reality, and it's, it's what we need because our cup is broken. Father, I, I want to pray today that you would help us uh, just for a few moments to, to focus on who you are, your character, your love, and your mercy, and that upon seeing and remembering the merciful and loving God you are, that we would have the faith to respond and to trust you with our very lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name.